What a week for the White House. <laughs> Where to begin? Well, you, you may, what was your takeaway from, I mean, this book? The Woodward book? On Tuesday, the Washington Post released details of Bob Woodward's dramatic new book about dysfunction inside the Trump administration. The first report surfaced about what's in Bob Woodward's new book and the advanced details are rather devastating. The book, Fear, describes a, quote, nervous breakdown of a White House led by an unsteady executive detached from the conventions of governing. Then, on Wednesday, the New York Times published an anonymous op-ed from a senior administration official. The op-ed is titled, quote, I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. And that writer claimed to be part of a resistance inside the administration that protects against the president's worst impulses. The back-to-back revelations paint a picture of a tumultuous administration full of advisors who are often at odds with the wishes of our country's leader. The administration has spent this week pushing back against that narrative. Uh, Everything so far that I've seen out of this book doesn't depict what's going on in the building behind me. Several high-ranking Trump officials have even issued statements denying that they wrote the New York Times op-ed. Trump himself has tried to discredit the op-ed. When you tell me about some anonymous source within the administration, probably who's failing and probably here for all the wrong reasons, no. And And he's fired back against claims in Woodward's book. The book is a work of fiction. If you look back at Woodward's past, he had the same problem with other presidents. He even asked in a tweet why Washington politicians don't change libel laws. In a statement to The Washington Post, Woodward said, I stand by my reporting. This is Can He Do That? A podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Now, according to Washington Post reporting, all of this week's developments have created a sense of crisis at the White House. And it's really been a one-two punch for the administration. The president has been about as paranoid as he's been in his presidency, according to people who've talked to him and and been briefed on those conversations. He's very upset by the Woodward book. He he started a, a witch hunt internally to try to figure out which administration officials had spoken to Woodward for the book. Philip Rucker is the Washington Post's White House bureau chief. He's been covering this week's revelations and the reaction they've provoked from the president. He's also one of the few reporters who've read a copy of Woodward's book. And then a day after those excerpts first came out in the Washington Post, uh, this New York Times op-ed by the anonymous senior official in the administration, and it just enraged the president. His anger level was described to us as volcanic, uh, and he was speculating wildly along with his advisors in the White House about who the author might have been. And in summary, what did this senior administration official write in this editorial? It was a pretty extraordinary column, and they said that there is a resistance inside the government, resistance among um, career officers in the government and and appointees as well who are trying to be guardrails against the president. And the column does not provide any really specific examples of things that have been done, but paints a portrait of the author and uh, and other collaborators in the government trying to stop Trump, describes the president's leadership as impetuous and petty and mean and dangerous for the country. And I think really importantly says that there were early whispers, there were some discussions among the cabinet 
uh, about invoking the 25th Amendment of the Constitution, which is a, a way that uh, members of the cabinet, along with the vice president, can deem the, the president to be mentally incapacitated or unfit for office and remove him forcefully from the presidency. The New York Times identifies this person only as a senior administration official. Mm-hmm. Typically, what does that identifier, senior administration official, mean? Well, it's a great question because it, it the meaning varies from news organization to news organization. And the New York Times has been very careful since this op-ed was published not to to explain, not to be clear about that term. So it could mean a cabinet level official and, you know, people who report directly to the president, which is a pretty small universe. Or it could be anybody with what is considered a senior level rank in the government. So there are so many different government agencies and each agency has a cabinet secretary, but they also have a number of deputy and assistant secretaries. There's a chief of staff. There are other senior staffers in the agencies. And it's unclear based on the way the New York Times is presenting this editorial. And this is not a criticism necessarily of the Times, but it it just the fact is it's unclear whether the senior official is somebody at a cabinet level or somebody um, much lower down in the government. A criticism some people have raised is that writing this op-ed, if it felt so important that you needed the public to have this information, why not give credibility to it by not being anonymous? What? Why might somebody want to remain anonymous in this situation? Yeah, it, that's a um, an important criticism. Uh, Trump critics are saying this person should come forward into the light, and it's important, and they should testify before Congress and share everything that he or she knows. But the person clearly feels like his or her job would be in jeopardy uh, if he or she identified him or herself. And I think that's why the New York Times has decided to to allow this person to remain anonymous. And if you read the op-ed, you can see that the point of view is that this person feels like he or she is providing a public service by remaining in the government and protecting the, the country and the institutions of the country uh, against what, what this person views as the dangers of President Trump. And so I think, you know, if this person were to become uh, identified, it'd be a matter of minutes, <laughs> literally, before uh, he or she is frog-marched out of the, out of the government and, and Trump makes a big spectacle of it and fires him or her and tries to threaten charges and so forth. So um, there's a reason that they're maintaining their an- anonymity, and I think that's the reason why The Times is protecting that person. Was this op-ed and the contents of it and claims like the 25th Amendment, were these things surprising to you as a person who covers this regularly? You know, the seeing the op-ed was a bit of a surprise. It was like one of those big um, news moments. We describe it in our story in the Post as a thunderclap in Washington. But the the findings, the, um, the narrative that's conveyed in the op-ed is really not surprising. It fits with the reporting that we've done for a year and a half at the Post and the reporting at the New York Times and elsewhere. It fits with the narrative of Bob Woodward's book. You know, it fits with what a lot of uh, people who've worked in the government or are close to Mr. Trump have told us anonymously before about the extent to which, you know, senior people are trying to protect the country from the president. That's a familiar theme. But I think the op-ed really elevated the discussion. It, it laid bare uh, some of these issues in really stark terms. And the fact that it was written by somebody uh, in the government as opposed to a story composed by journalists with, you know, a few anonymous quotes here or there, that's different. And, and so I think it really rose to a new level and certainly has created a new level of anxiety uh, among the president and his loyal uh, advisors. So much so that the president has suggested possible treason. Mm-hmm. He's also 
suggested that perhaps Bob Woodward's book is libelous. He asked why Washington politicians aren't changing libel laws. Are these sort of credible claims by the president? Can he pursue these kinds of allegations? I don't think that the author of this op-ed did anything criminal. I don't think there's a way that the president can charge this person uh, with any crimes. Uh, You know, it's important to point out for the listeners that treason as a legal term is actually somebody who betrays the government, betrays the state, not someone who betrays the president or the sovereign. Certainly, it's not treason against the country to speak one's mind about the president. Uh, All sorts of officials say things like this in their memoirs or uh, in interviews with reporters, and that's perfectly legal and and defended by the First Amendment of the Constitution. But the president, I think, is going to look for ways to exercise his executive power to find this person, to hold this person accountable, and to trash the media and really take it to the New York Times. And that's been part of the strategy here. They're not doubting Uh, necessarily that the author of this column is not a real person. Instead, they're attacking the New York Times for publishing it. They're demanding, the president demanded last night that the Times turn over the sources. Sarah Sanders, the press secretary on Thursday morning, issued a, a really strong statement about the New York Times telling people on Twitter that they should call the opinion desk of the failing New York Times, and she actually published their telephone number uh, to ask them the identity of the source. And so there's an effort to sort of push this all back on the New York Times. Now, one theme that's apparent in the op-ed and is also present in Bob Woodward's book is this idea of staffers trying to prevent the president from acting on his own whims, going so far as to remove papers from his desk. So earlier this week on this podcast, we released audio of a conversation between Trump and Woodward about Woodward's attempt to reach Trump for an interview for that book. Hello, Bob. President Trump, how are you? How are you? How are you doing? Okay. And since then, the Post has reported details about Trump's complaints that his staff prevented him from interviewing with Woodward. Can you tell me more about that? Well, Woodward tried to get an interview with the president and went through six different intermediaries, according to Woodward. I never got a call. I never got a message. Who did you Who did you ask about speaking to me? Well, about six people. Uh, including Kellyanne Conway, the counselor to the president, Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, who's become uh, pretty good friends with the president, uh, trying to, to convince the president to talk to him. And those, you know, requests were either denied or, or ignored, not acted upon. I think President Trump, we know from the, from the audio that Woodward released, but we also know from our own reporting, uh, has been very upset in the last few weeks that he didn't participate in the book. He feels like he could have shaped the narrative had he participated. He wanted a chance to be able to uh, defend himself, to talk about what he views as his accomplishments in office. Too bad, because nobody told me about it, and I would have loved to have spoken to you. You know I'm very open to you. I think you've always been fair, but we'll see what happens. But all I can say is the country is doing very well. And, you know, he has tremendous faith in his ability to use his charisma to to persuade people. It's why he wants to talk to Robert Mueller uh, for the interview on the Russia investigation. So I think he thinks he could have turned Woodward with an interview and his staff kept him from doing it. Uh, It's unclear, though. I mean, it's hard to imagine Woodward could have gone to so many people uh, around Trump and nobody would have elevated the request to the president. Why might some staffers have failed to elevate the request or not wanted Trump to talk to Woodward? Well, I think they don't. They're they're worried about what he would say. Um, they know that Woodward is the rigorous investigative reporter who would come uh, with a lot of tough questions and a lot of documentation to back up his findings and present that to the president. And it would be a difficult interview. Uh, so I'm sure the staff 
were nervous about, you know, whether the president could handle that setting. You know, interviews, Trump's interviews have not always gone well. You know, he likes to do interviews because he he just likes to engage with reporters. He finds it fun. He thinks he's his own best advocate and his own best defender. Uh, But some of these difficult, um, hard-hitting interviews can be difficult for him and have been troublesome for long periods of time. I think back to that Lester Holt interview Mm -hmm. with the anchor of NBC Nightly News um, shortly after Trump fired Jim Comey. And he gave Trump gave an answer about uh, firing Comey because of the Russia investigation. And in fact, when I decided to just do it, I said to myself, I said, you know, This Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made-up story. It's an excuse by the Democrats for having lost an election that they should have won. And the reason they should have won it is... And that has hovered over the president ever since. It's been more than a year. Uh, And I think the president's words are probably being used in in the Mueller report eventually. Uh, So that was a problematic interview. And I think the staff try to protect the president from engaging uh, in too many of those interviews. And again, as a person who covers the White House every day, what from this book stood out to you? What was the most surprising or striking thing? You know, a couple things stood out. Um, I was really struck by by just how um, how determined some of the people in the government, people like Gary Cohn, who was the top economic advisor, were to stymie the president's agenda, his ideas, what he wanted to do from a policy perspective. I mean, he wanted to withdraw the United States from its trading agreement with South Korea. This was at a very delicate time in uh, the North Korea nuclear fight. He ordered up this letter to be written to the president of South Korea announcing that the U.S. was pulling out of the trade agreement. And Gary Cohn thought this would be so disruptive, not only to the economy and, and not only to our alliance with South Korea, it's an important ally for us in the region, but could potentially create huge problems uh, with North Korea and in the Asia Pacific, which is dealing with this nuclear threat. So he snuck into the Oval Office and took the paper off his desk. Uh, You know, that's a pretty extreme measure. And that happened again with NAFTA. Uh, You know, there's a phone call that Woodward describes right after the chemical gas attack in April of 2017 in Syria, where Trump tells Jim Mattis, the defense secretary, that he wants to have Bashar al-Assad, the head of Syria, assassinated. Uh, he says, you know, kill Assad, kill all of them, kill kill the leaders of Syria who perpetrated this attack. That would be an extraordinary thing for the U.S. military to do. And Mattis is just on the phone saying, you know, yeah, yeah, okay, we're, we'll get on that, sir. And then hangs up the phone and tells a senior official, you know, with him, said, no way, we're not going to do any of this. We're going to be much more measured in how we respond to that attack. But, you know, that what, what Trump wanted done could have been interpreted as a presidential order. And had Mattis been entirely sort of uh, compliant with the president's wishes, he would have drawn up a plan to assassinate Assad and presented it to the president. And the president, as the commander in chief, could have authorized it. So now, after this pretty wild week in the White House, what happens next? Do you expect that things will change inside the White House? I don't. Um, I think, you know, the developments of this week are are important and, and remarkable and uh, will be remembered for some time. But I don't think they are going to change the way the president operates. And frankly, I don't think they're going to change the way a lot of the people around him operate. I think there are going to continue to be senior officials in the, the White House and the administration who are going to work to uh, try to safeguard the country and the institutions and the rule of law. 
against what they view as the president's dangerous impulses. But I also think the president is going to continue to have the same impulses and issue the same orders and say the same things. And I mean, he's, he's not going to change who he is. Uh, one thing that, that, that these events could do is they could start to shape public opinion, uh, which is important. The president currently enjoys huge, deep, widespread support among Republican voters. So the Republican base is very solidly with him. But if we continue to have these revelations and these accusations that he's unfit for office, potentially that support starts to erode a little bit. If that support starts to erode a little bit, it might mean that, you know, a few, you know, Republican senators or, or House members could feel more emboldened to speak up or uh, try to take some sort of action. Part of what the reality of Washington in the last two years has been that the, the Republican leadership in Congress has been unwilling to serve as a check on the administration. So they're kind of nodding and going along with Trump because they view what he's doing on the economy and tax cuts and regulations and so forth to be really uh, effective and in keeping with their agenda. But if public opinion starts to erode and if Trump loses some of that support in the Republican base, then I think lawmakers are going to, you know, could potentially start to break from him a little bit. Do you imagine that the news of this week is that tipping point? I don't know. It's You never really know until you can look back in the rearview mirror. And there have been so many moments that we thought have been tipping points in the arc of the Trump story in America <laughs> that have not been tipping points. Charlottesville, his Putin, Charlottesville, exactly. Helsinki with Putin. I mean, you could go back to the Access Hollywood tape. Everyone thought that that meant That's right. there's no way he could get elected president. And sure enough, he did. Uh, so I don't know if this is the tipping point or not. It, we should point out, though, that it comes at a really important political moment. The midterm elections are only two months away. Uh, Democrats already have an enthusiasm advantage. The polls show them up. The Washington Post poll earlier this week with ABC News showed, I believe, a 14 percentage point um, advantage for Democrats in the generic ballot, meaning, you know, of all Americans, would they rather have Democrats or Republicans in Congress? And that size of an advantage means the Democrats will most likely win back the majority of the House of Representatives. But, you know, this is, a, this is not a great time for Republicans to be talking about the president's mental capacity and fitness for office uh, with the midterms looming. So there could be a political consequence, too. Phil, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. You can follow Philip Rucker on Twitter at Philip Rucker, or you can follow me, Allison Michaels, at Allison Mikes. Bob Woodward's book, Fear, Trump in the White House, is set to publish Tuesday, September 11th. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Can He Do That? If you like this, please share it and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our podcasts. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Carol Alderman, with design direction from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon.